And as you can probably surmise, we're going to be studying the faithfulness of God. And I pray that this will enlarge your hearts as much as it has mine preparing and studying for this. Please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to be looking at a couple verses there to begin with, kind of as our starting point. But let me pray first for us again. Almighty God, faithful God, thank you that we can trust in you and look to you and rely upon you and bring all of our cares and worries and needs and thanks and praises to you, for you are the one true God. And oh God, thank you for the, the indescribable privilege it is to be called your child, to be a part of the body of Christ. So Father, we ask, we, we pray and beseech you for the work of your Spirit now to open our eyes even, even larger, even brighter, Lord, by his illuminating work into your faithfulness, Lord, and enlarge our faithfulness in you and our faithfulness to you, Father, as we look at your word and all that you have done and all that you are. And Father, I especially pray that you would be with our brother and our pastor right now, Lord, and grant him healing strength and comfort. Grant him your strength from on high, Father, to equip him today for the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would give him reprieve in his throat and his sinuses, Lord, and grant him your strength, Lord, for we have none of our own. We are weak and needy, but we give you praise and thanks for your grace is always, Lord, always sufficient in our time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to read verses 9 and 10, and I want to take the privilege myself of reading this to start us off. We are going to look at the faithfulness of God. But in studying this, quickly discovered how we need to kind of step back, as I always like to do, and get a bigger picture. But we're going to look at a couple other attributes in conjunction with this because they're so, as we've seen in all of God's attributes, how harmonious they are, how interworking they are, how intertwined they are, even though we isolate them in our study, how they are so, lack of better word, interdependent interworking, intermanifested one to another, complementing each other in their work. So Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 and 10. We're going to look at this in more detail a little bit later on, but I want to start us here to get our hearts set right. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. The faithfulness of God. Before we look into this further, We've got to look at what I've, I've tried to describe, and forgive my finiteness here, but we need to look at what the, the, the makeup, the, the substance, the, even the energia, the energy of God is in his faithfulness, in the working of his faithfulness. Who and what is he faithful to? What is Moses referring to here, and, and where do we find the fullness of, of his covenant and the loving kindness of his mercy. So what I want to do, losing my marker here, there it is. As I said, being so intertwined in this glorious quality of God, this this perfection of all his attributes, but in this one in particular in our study that are, that is essential to his own being, because without this, again, he would not be God. Without his faithfulness, he would not be God. And because he cannot act contrary to his own nature. 
But tied to this and so closely woven is God's truthfulness. His aletheia. I'm going to misspell that. I know it. (laughs) There. There you go. This is God's veracity. Okay. His habitual truthfulness that is also defined by his very nature. I did misspell that. There we go. There's several spellings out there, which was interesting. So it confused me a little bit, but that's it. It's expressed to us both in his word, both incarnate and inscribed, inscripturated. So we kind of have to back up, look, look what the substances are, the substances within his faithfulness, where it's derived from, from his truthfulness, from his word, both in Christ and his written word. We see this in his, in his very nature, but throughout creation. This also was formed by his very word, the very breath, his very speaking. Let there be light. We also understand truthfulness in his, what's in his truthfulness? Where is truthfulness found? In his commands, right? Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Also in his promises, promises both of blessing whether of prosperity, whether of abundance, also the promises and his warnings, just as we read. And again, this is another most holy perfection worthy of our awe and worship. And God's truthfulness means that he is, as we read, the true God, none other, that his being and his character conform to his own idea of what the true God should be. Let me say that again. God's truthfulness means that his being and his character conform to his own idea of what the true God should be. And this is what distinguishes him from all other so-called gods in the world. Because it's not up to man, and nor could man we don't have the ability to even determine, much less attempt to conform God into what the, our idea of God should be, should be like, or in order what he should be true. Because all that we can see, can conceive of a true identity of God, of God apart from his word and what he's revealed to us is idolatry. Any conception of man of what he thinks God is on his own being without what has been revealed to him by the word of God is an idol of his own making. My God is money. My God is fill in the blank. Or he, even his attempts of a religious God. But with this unified expression of the revelation of God himself to us, that he not only speaks the truth, but that he is truth, we understand that all of his knowledge and all of his words are both true and final Absolute, objective truth. And we know that Christ's words ring true to this and still relevant today. His truth, it's his, his words that he spoke in John fourteen six are immutable. They're eternal. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one goes to the Father but through him. We see that path to the faithfulness of God. And John seventeen seventeen as well. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as God sent Christ into the world, we are likewise sent into the world with that same truth, that same word. God's truth is the authoritative truth and the only truth that can illuminate and illumine the heart of man that can enable him to perceive himself and the world as it actually is, but also is that enabling truth that we are to believe and to exercise and to count on and to rely on and to be faithful to ourselves and our, and our relationship with Christ. 
what he's done in his faithfulness to us is to be reciprocated in our faithfulness to him, his truth, and his word. Okay. This is all still introduction. We are getting to faithfulness, I promise you. So, we see that it's only by what God has given us through the revelation of himself, his truth, that will enable our minds to, to gain a reflection, an understanding, an ability to respond to what the true God must be, who he must be, and our hearts enabled to recognize him as God, and by that inner workings of his truth, of his word, of his spirit, we are then enlightened to believe, we are brought into faith and to repentance, to understand then, to love and obey. We're enabled then to exercise our, our faithfulness to him. So we see from those two verses in John 14 and 17, and, and many others like Job thirty-seven sixteen, it says the wonders of the one perfect in knowledge that God's truth is both perfect and the final standard of truth. But if then this, his knowledge, God's knowledge, his omniscience is perfect and it is expansive and the standard of truth, then God is never mistaken about anything within the world or within our own lives. He knows all things throughout his creation, throughout the expanse of the universe, to the very soul and heart matters and thoughts of man. And he's never mistaken about that. He knows things so infinitely well, and he knows us this way too, as, as Psalm 139 declares and, and examines us so wonderfully that he searches us. He knows us in our thoughts, even before we speak. He knows what words are going to be on our tongue. Our coming and going in and out where we are at work, our daily lives, even our creation, how he has knit us together, and he knows the depths of our soul and our greatest need. So it's from all of this that we understand that the standard of true knowledge is the conformity to God's knowledge. So if we think our way of think, if we think if our way of thinking and our thought process is in accordance to how God thinks about himself, about any of his creation throughout all the created order, about anything within our lives and ourselves, then we are thinking truthfully about it. We're thinking after God's truth, after his knowledge and after his thoughts. So any questions? Did I lose anybody in there? Flowing, going with the flow? His word is true. His truthfulness is the standard. If we align ourselves with his word and his truth, we know who he is, what his thoughts are towards sin, towards salvation, towards the lost, towards eternity. All matters are found in his, in his word and in his truth. Okay. So can we say, and I know this is an easy question, is God's knowledge, is his revealed truth, his word, and what we find in his word, as I said, both his promises, good, and the warnings of his promises. Are they for us? Are they reliable to us? Are they faithful to us? Will he carry them out? Absolutely. But how does he do that? Okay, get ready. We're going to do some exercises in your Bible now. We're going to get into some scriptures. Um, Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. Someone like to read that. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Amen. How often do we change our minds? Peggy, don't say anything. <laughs> How often do we break our word, our promises, our commitments? But God never recalls a promise made. Oh, man, I wish, oh, I didn't mean to. Oh, he never repents of his promises, of his decrees. One that he has spoken, he is committed to it, and to see its fulfillment through. Second Samuel seven twenty eight. Someone like to turn there and read that. 
2 Samuel 7.28. Please, go for it. 2 Samuel 7.28. Amen. This this was David's prayer to God after God had conveyed to him his covenantal promise through through Nathan's vision, through what Nathan had received, he passed on to David. Not just for a house, not just for a temple to be built, but for the descendant, the lineage, the promise of the seed that would come after him, who would come forth from David, and God would establish his kingdom. Did we see this happen? Absolutely. It's come together perfectly. It happened in accordance with time, okay? So we see this from this introduction that God's words, his truth about himself, about his creation, about the world, are all true. There's no shadow of turning in these things. There's no hidden meaning. They are light, and they reveal what is hidden, and they expose and they transform. They are for our good because, as Titus says, they come from the unlying God, from a God who cannot lie, from the God who is impossible to lie. And his truths fully correspond to reality. Not what Hollywood tells you, not what the media tells you, but what reality is, is from God's truth. And whatever conforms to God's own words is true. And whatever fails to conform is false. Question? Okay. <laughs> Just reading facial expression. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Now we're getting into God's faithfulness. Yeah. I was just thinking about Abraham, how he must have a son. And he couldn't wait. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And look what happened to that offspring. Yeah. And we're going to get there, brother. Thank you. Yes. That's okay. Right. Right. Yep. Amen. And we're in sync. We're going we're gonna to hit one of these in detail. So bear with me. We're getting there. Remember, I'm slow and old, so we're getting there. <laughs> so God's faithfulness is still intimately linked, tied so closely in harmony with his truthfulness and his word. We're not going to get away from that. And all of this, of course, we know is good for our sanctification, which we're going to Look at our conclusion. But by way of introduction and comparison to consider the world around us, I mean, we see no longer is man's word good enough in a business transaction. You know, how often do we hear and see? I know I do in business relationships. Oh, yeah, I said that, but really what I meant was, okay. Sadly, we see it in marriages today where, you know, the faithful bond, the love, the unity that's committed to until death, that covenant union is just broken off and discarded like clothing. And even in the church, we see, you know, pastors unfaithful to preach God's word. But how about our own unfaithfulness to Christ, you know, to the light and the privilege we've been given? But when we consider the faithfulness of God, how refreshing, how unspeakably blessed it is to lift our eyes above the ruin around us, not in pride, not in haughtiness, not as, okay, I've got it, you don't, but looking further up to him who's faithful in himself, in his truth, in his word, and his promises to us. So, introduction, here we go. God's faithfulness is a virtue that we're going to get into Scripture and examine it very closely. It reveals to us just however mindful he is, eternally mindful he is of us, 
but not only of us, but of his covenant, of his promises, both the blessings and the cursings, the blessings and the warnings, and his character, how strong it is, how sure it is in fulfilling every one of those promises. So first item here we're going to look at is God's faithfulness to himself. Again, we were there, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. And this is in the context of the Decalogue. The Lord is commanding those who have been called, who have been chosen of God, to have no compromise with idolatry, to have no alliance or even a consideration of sin, but rather, as he says, to know, therefore, to be deeply convinced by faith of who Yahweh is, the self-existent eternal God, that he is your Elohim, he is your supreme God, and that he is a faithful God that has given you and all of us, every reason to know him and to serve him. And there, as we saw last week in the use for mercy, has said in the Hebrew, also speaks of loving kindness. But even in, in this context, it carries with it a meaning of his covenantal relationship with us, that he displays to us his loyalty through his obligations to us, because of who he is. He is faithful to himself, and he's faithful to those that whom he is in relationship with, who he has called and saved. And this speaks of the wonders of his relationship as a faithful God, as a true heavenly father to us, to those who love and obey him. And we see this, please turn with me in Psalm 119.90. Psalm 119.90. Would anybody like to read that? Got it? Amen. Thank you, brother. So your faithfulness endures through all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. The faithfulness we find in God continues eternally. The faithfulness to himself continues throughout eternity. Deuteronomy 32.4, I'll read this one. It says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And this is the song of Moses, where we have here again a single expression used in Scripture, to soar which is the rock. It's only used here. This is a strong refuge of who God is himself, perfect in his work, in his being, his essence, his ways. But this is also an image of immutability, that he is consistent in himself, truthful, faithful in himself and all he does, and in all his ways, in all his active personal rule over the world. So he extends that faithfulness from beyond himself into our finite time and existence. Psalm 89.8. If anyone would like to look that up and read it. Psalm 89.8. Anybody? You got it? Tanya? Amen. The God of hosts, the God of armies, speaking of of his might, of his encompassing power in himself, that none other can compare or even come close. But we see here that his might, his strength, just as we, we picture armies surrounding defense systems, people, mechanisms, whatever it is we can conjure in what we see in the in the finite world, 
is paralleled here with God's faithfulness. Himself, guarding himself, evident within himself. And David is declaring here the character of God himself in this, the nature of him being surrounded by faithfulness as seen like an army. Okay? One more. Isaiah 11.5. Could have spent the rest of the study here, but had to keep going on. Isaiah 11.5. Got that, Greg? 11. Yes, eleven five. Amen. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. This is obviously talking about the Son. This is talking about the Messiah and his kingdom. And we see him girded about, wearing the ornaments of the very expectations that are placed in him speaking of what is inherent in himself. He is ready for his work. He is identifying himself and the beauty that are found within his righteousness and his faithfulness. Okay? Any questions so far? Second one is God's faithfulness to his word. Psalm 33, 4. I'll read this one. Psalm 33, 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. This song, the Psalm of David, he, he enters into a theme in this verse, declaring the word of the Lord is upright, and it is of the upright one, Yashar, that it is one who is upright and whose word is worked out, accomplished in power and in faithfulness, according to his desires and purpose. And in this psalm, it's, it's particularly demonstrated in, in showing us his creative power by the breath of his mouth, his faithful word that is fulfilled in, in time and, again, for its full intended purpose. If God's being and his word are immutable, how will this differ with regard to anything in our life, whether his word to us is one of discipline or abundance? Both from God are true and faithful, right? Are they not? True to his being and his character and to his word. And this is showing to us his his goodness and his mercy. Proverbs 8. Six to eight. Anybody like to read that one? Proverbs eight, six to eight. Got it, Keith? Amen. Amen. Thank you. The great teacher in these verses, which is, of course, Christ, and following on beyond this, and that whole chapter is, is great, are speaking of himself to the student, to the disciple, and not only regarding the faithfulness and the perfections of his words and their truthfulness, but of their final intended target, which is the heart and soul of man. Again, it's a clear insight into the power of his words, that he is faithful to his words, to the truthfulness of his words, and also of its faithful purpose, the intended purpose to be carried out in the soul of man. Psalm Psalm 89, 33 through 35. Anybody want to read that? Told you we were going to be turning a lot. (laughs) Psalm 89, 33 to 35. You got it? Okay. Thank you, brother. 
steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to you. Amen. Powerful example of God keeping his word, being faithful to his word, and saying that he would not only not only not break off his love or his loving kindness from David, meaning that God would not break his oath or his word to him. For if God did break his word, and in this case his covenant promises to David by nullifying them or annulling the covenant, God would then not only be treating his covenant like a common or human covenant, but that his word would be profaned. So he's going to remain faithful to what he says. He will not alter what he has uttered, especially since it is his eternal holiness that speaks. And what a glorious weight does this bring to his promises for us, especially in in light of that we can now look back and know with full conviction that David's covenant was never broken. It was perfectly fulfilled. And what we have believed it to be has been fulfilled in Christ himself. And will his promises to us, given by his word, be any different? Any of the many other promises that we see in Scripture? Do we think that they will be altered or or deficient or less effective or less fulfilled by any means? Absolutely not. One last scripture, I'll read it. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. Great scripture. Psalm 12, 6 to 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times, you, O Lord, will keep them. The purity, the excellency of God's word, is going to remain faithful to himself throughout all eternity. We never have to doubt. We never have to question. We never have to worry. God, are you really listening? Are your promises still steadfast and true? Are they for me? Are they there? Do they exist? And we go through these times. I know we do. Amen. And we're going to get there. Thank you. I love how everybody's in harmony. (laughs) Next one, God is faithful, and we're going to get to this, to his promises. All right. Now, we're going to go up to about 40,000 feet, okay, and pick up on what Greg was talking about. But I want to start out first. If you turn to Genesis 8, I want to look at just a general example, if you will, of God's faithfulness to his promises. Genesis 8, verses 21 and 22. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Immediately following the flood, when the water had receded, when The water had washed away wicked mankind. Every beast and animal plant that was on the earth and not in the ark was taken away. Land reappeared. The ark settled. Did not remove sin from man's nature, though. was still there. But Noah humbled himself, sought the Lord, making an altar and sacrificed what he had available, what was there in the ark of the clean animals and the birds unto the Lord. And we see this in this passage, the promises of God's faithfulness in general terms of all his created order to himself, to his word, 
that the earth, has it been destroyed by water since then? No. Do we still enjoy spring and summer? Well, maybe summer and winter in Texas, but the seasons, the planting, the harvest, how God's faithfulness to his promises over all his creation still continue. It hasn't changed. It still continues. God is still faithful. That, that is a wonderfully visible testimony of God's faithfulness to us, that we can go out, well, some of us can go out and plant seeds in a garden and grow plants and enjoy fruit and vegetables. You know, that's a testimony to God's faithful promise to us. Okay. Joshua 21:45, please turn there. Still at 30,000, 40,000 feet, but we're going to kind of dive in a little bit now. Joshua 21:45. This is roughly a thousand years after Noah, after Babel, after Abraham, probably Job, after Isaac, after Jacob, after Joseph, after the Israelites were brought out of Egypt and the new generation of Israelites were brought under Joshua's leadership, they completed the conquest by, of Canaan by the Lord's strength. This is a thousand years. We read, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Not one. All came to pass. We have an amazing declaration here of the testimony of the Lord to his faithfulness, to his promises. And even here we see a timeless and, and an eschatological defeating of all the enemies and giving them to the, into the promised land. Do we see that hope for ourselves in this? I'm going through a study of Joshua on my own right now just to see every one of their battles. If it was not brought to the Lord, was not in his strength they were defeated at Ai there was sin in the camp but when the Lord's strength went forth every one of his promises he was driving them out defeating them wiping out a typological picture of sin of our enemies of God's hatred for sin even in his created people I dare not go there and judge that question but that's God's doing that's his faithfulness to the promise I will give you that land. I will drive out your enemies before you. I will conquer them for you. And I will fulfill that promise of the land. Yes, brother. Yeah, I mean, just, I'm just going to Amen. Yeah. Lord willing. Yeah. That's. Yeah. That's not a flippant term. That is. Yeah. Right. And like Greg brought up, Abraham, you know, the promise he received, the faith he was was energized with, with God's power to believe in God's promise. It still took how many years before it happened, you know? And he was, can't imagine, 100 years old raising a child. <laughs> so, amen. Okay. Now let, let's look at that again, that promise the greatest promise we have from the Father, which is, amen, the promise of the seed. Where do we begin? Where? Amen. <laughs> All right, Genesis 3.15. <clears throat> the great promise of the Savior where God is speaking to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. We have here the promise of the Savior, a, a gospel revelation 
the dawn of the gospel. For no sooner had the wound been opened by sin that the divine remedy was applied. Boom, right there, immediate. Then, 2,000 years later, still at 30,000 feet, still in the same book, Genesis 12, the promise given to Abraham. And then in Genesis 15, 13 to 18, I'm just going to read the first verse here, but no, wait a minute, I've got to read it all. That's right. Genesis 15, 13 to 18, where the Lord is telling Abraham that it will still be four generations, roughly 430 years, before your descendants will return to the land that I had promised you. And from this lineage, oh boy, I've got to get going. I'm going I'm to write down Genesis 15, 13 to 18, read that later. <laughs> but this is talking about the 430 years, the four generations for the fulfillment of that sin to be accomplished in those nations and those people before his descendants would be called forth into the land that had been promised to them. But 2,000 years had transpired. Think about that. That's how long it's been since roughly since Christ ascended into heaven. But God's promises are still true and faithful because he says at the last there, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And as I said, it wasn't until another 430 years the fulfillment of the promise came to pass. And at the end, Exodus 12:41, at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. When Scripture says the hour has come, that's what it means. <laughs> it's not, okay, yeah, we're getting around to it. Around to it. Let's keep on. Still at, well, down to 20,000 feet. It was still another 700 years before the Lord revealed through Isaiah, the prophet, that the seed would be a son. And they would call him Emmanuel. Isaiah seven thirteen to 14. Write that one down, please. And then finally, we jump into the New Testament. Paul in Galatians 4, 4 to 5. At the proper time, at the fullness of time, even yet another 700 years or so, we see the fulfillment of God's promise in Christ himself. But when the fullness of time came, Galatians 4, 4 to 5, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. As, as profound and soothing as these promises are to our souls to hear this and to ponder this, as Keith was saying, we all go through times and seasons in our lives where it's not easy to see and, and to trust in God's faithfulness. As Brian said, even our own faithfulness wanes and falls, maybe not even a whole week, man. It may be just within a day. But when our faith is tried and, and even when our eyes are dimmed with tears and we lose that sense of the outworking of God's love and his faithfulness to us, to us whether it be from sin, we know who we can go to with the advocate we have, whether it's the distractions of the world or harassment by the enemy and the still small voice of his word grows dim, this is when we must seek the grace of God in time of need. This is when we find that closet and we go to the Father and we be with him. And turning to his truth, his promises, his faithfulness, we look at Isaiah 50, verses 7 to 10. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. And this is speaking of Christ, but this is a, this is a covenant promise of God's faithfulness to us. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. And we can always speak this next to our advocate. I mean, this is not 
anything in ourselves we're talking about. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So we've looked at the goodness of God and his promises. Sorry, I'm losing track. There we go. The best for those who fear the Lord, who love him and obey him, the goodness we receive from that. But we know from Scripture the Lord does not withhold the worst of his promises either. The warnings and the judgment are true. If David's words in Psalm 119, 138 are true, and they are, that God's testimonies and commands are righteous and are very faithful, then the Lord has surely made known to us his hatred for evil. He has faithfully diagnosed that terrible state that sin has produced, and he must, he has to punish the same. For he's warned us in Hebrews twelve twenty nine that he is a consuming fire. He will purify the works of the righteous, and he will assuredly fulfill in complete faithfulness to his word, to his promises, and to himself the making of good in all those, all, all his threatenings to punish sin, and he will vindicate his children. Think of Pharaoh. Think of Korah. Think of Achan. Think of the victims of the flood. Think of the nations that were defeated and driven out to see God's absolute holy hatred for sin. We need to have that same hatred within us because God will remain faithful to everything he's given us and everything he said. One final verse and thought to keep in perspective of the promises of God and what we just looked at in his promises from a 30,000 foot. I know some of you are probably already there. 2 Peter 3.8. It, it, it kind of hit me with a different impact reading this. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. Don't forget this. Don't, don't let this fact, this is a fact from God, that what the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Okay? Oh, and I'm not going to make it. To his people. Oh, and this is the best part. No, it's all good, but this is this brings it home. God is faithful in preserving his people. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Coffee time. First Corinthians one nine. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord. He is faithful in preserving us in this. Paul was thanking God for what he's talking about in this chapter, about the prior act of grace of God's future guarantee on them that on the day of, and on the day of judgment. And now summed up here, we see the reality of God's faithfulness to God's calling of believers. Where is our assurance that we as believers will be found guilty, or excuse me, guiltless on that final day? Because God is faithful to his call. This ties directly back to Deuteronomy 7, 9. Those two are are, uh, linked passages. He's always faithful, always reliable. God is also faithful in, yes, disciplining us. We need correction. Both in what he withholds from us and what he gives to us. Is he not faithful in sending you sorrow as well as joy? Is he being tricky or mean? Absolutely not. His faithfulness is a truth to be confessed not only when we are at at ease or in abundance or at peace, but also when we're under the rebuke and discipline of the Lord. Not just a confession of the tongue, but a heart depth confession a resolve within our soul. And this is David's heart cry, Psalm 119, 75 and 76. 
I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that your faithfulness, in your faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. And even though the affliction in David's case is brought about through arrogant oppressors in David's life, this was, as are all of God's dealings with his children, designed to test the heart, to see if there is found love, to see if there is a reciprocal faithfulness to God, there is a love and a desire to know him and to obey him and his will and his commands. And it's through these afflictions, these disciplining measures of the Lord that he humbles us. Imagine the discipline Noah was going through, the thought he was thinking of, being rescued but seeing the result of God's judgment for sin, the humility he must have come out with on that, in that ark. Our chastening is not only reconcilable with God's loving kindness and faithfulness to us, but it is the effect and expression of it. Okay? Real quick, God is finally faithful to glorifying us with Christ. Amen? Sorry for my writing. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Whether it's another thousand years, whether it's tomorrow, Whatever it is, he will bring it to pass. And finally, very familiar passage. I'm skipping quite a bit here, but I hope this was helpful. Our promise, our promise from the Father, his faithfulness still stands strong. You probably know where I'm going. Romans 8.30. Whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified... He will glorify. He will glorify. Now, one final thought. Two minutes. If we contemplate, if we meditate, if we apprehend this more and more, what will this do to worry in our lives? What will this do to our complaining and our murmuring? And what will this do for our confidence in God and who he is? and his faithfulness, his truthfulness, his word to us. Just a couple final stanzas from William Cooper. Wonderful hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behold a frowning provident, behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Amen. Let's go worship.